O God, because without you we are not able to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Um, I've likely used this illustration before, but I will likely use it again. There's a bluegrass uh, artist called Rhonda Vincent, and she has a song that she wrote, and it says, You don't love God if you don't love your neighbor. And out of that song, she has a couple lines that says, Oh, you don't love God if you don't love your neighbor. If you gossip about him, if you, ha- if you never have mercy, if he gets into trouble and you don't try to help him, then you don't love your neighbor and you don't love God. Now, it's kind of a catchy beat, and I, th- I thoroughly enjoy the whole song. I'll not sing it for you. But this is the point of today's lesson. It, it's, it's that, it's that uh, what is now a contemporary bluegrass song, that's, that's the point of this lesson today. You may have status, you may have position, you may have wealth, you may have lots of things, but if you don't have compassion for your neighbor, then what is obvious is you don't love God. And, and, and we're in, we just enter in again. We just turn the page and we enter into more hard things that Jesus has to say to us. Um, and, and even today we get to talk about uh, an ever-flaming, ever-hot, ever-existing hell as well. So we get to cover some interesting things here. Uh, and, in, and in light of this passage, I thought a quote I saw from Bob Golf. He's, he's, uh, he's an author of a book called Love Does. Lots of Christians uh, quote him, like him, and that kind of thing. He said, what keeps us from loving our neighbor is fear of what will happen if we do. Frankly, what scares me more is thinking of what will happen if we don't. Now, this was not in a commentary about this passage, but it could be. Because in light of this passage, and I I, I resonated with him. I think he's exactly right. I I think we have fear in reaching out and helping neighbors and, and doing what we even know should be done, there's this fear of what might happen in all that. But frankly, I, uh, he says, what scares me more is thinking of what will happen if we don't. So we see today that the test of true religion is how we care for those who cannot care for themselves. This is, this is the thrust of this passage. First, we're going to see... Um, consumed with earthly pleasures. So let's look in 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This is just uh, a kind of a, a gross picture in this. This rich man was dressed in purple, and, and this is this is big at this time where we can have all kinds of things and we don't think much of it. But purple dye at this time would have come from like snails, and so it was in very small quantity. And so, in order to get enough dye to 
to uh, color a, a garment of clothing in purple, it would have been very costly. It, all the time it would take to put all this together and then dye that uh, cloth, if somebody wore purple, we knew then that they were a, uh, in a position of wealth, that they had uh, much in the way of resources. It's not something that everybody had. And, and in that light, this man like flaunted his wealth. He, he flaunted his earthly possessions. He wanted everyone to know that he had plenty. So, and then it talks about he, had, he was dressed in purple and then fine linen. And fine linen would be the undergarments under his purple outer robe, most likely. And even in the fine linens, this would have likely cost more than the average man's uh, clothes for the day. So even the man's undergarments are more expensive than what normal people would wear. The man wore these fine clothes, and he must have lived in some large house, something like, I don't know, we'll just call it a mansion. This word for gate that's used here, where the, they laid Lazarus at his gate, it's the same word as, that's used for like city gates. So this, the idea that this could be a huge gate on a huge house um, seems very reasonable. So he was not only dressed nice, he probably like drove a Bentley and parked it in his six-stall garage once he got through his big gate. He's that kind of, uh, he's in that kind of a position. Says he feasted sumptuously every day. What do, you, what do you think of when you think of feasting sumptuously? Becky and I weren't here last week. We, we uh, were in Norfolk, Virginia for a friend's wedding, which was a beautiful wedding. It was a nice time. It, it was outdoor wedding, and the rain held off. All that worked out well. That Sunday morning, last Sunday morning, we went to Christ Our Redeemer Church in Norfolk. And uh, <clears throat> after church in the big city, they have a uh, Brazilian steakhouse. I've experienced that once. And then folks like me, you have to go at the right times because you just don't walk in there and just eat any time because, well, we only have so much money. And it's a splurge when it's on discount. So it was on discount for lunch um, during the week, not quite as steep of a discount for for, uh, weekends, but I talked Becky into going. And everything you tasted, it just like exploded in there. And it's like, oh, it's more flavor, more flavor, more flavor. And... They, they cook their meat on these spits in a uh, charcoal uh, kind of oven thingy. And, and the, you, the meat's on these spits, and it's spinning all the time. So then they give you cards, and you put a card down at your table, and it's uh, red, or you turn it over, and it, or, or, or green. And so if it's green, it's go time. And when it's go time, these guys are coming around, and they'll bring this, when I say a skewer, it's like this. It's huge, with this great big hunk of meat, and they park it near you and slice it, tell you what it is, and if you want it, they slice you off some. And then another guy comes, and another guy, and when you need to pause, you just turn your card over to red, and they'll pause, and they quit coming by and offering you the food. Well, for that was a, it was a splurging time for us, but when I think of feasting sumptuously, uh, that was it. I was like praising Jesus, because look, at, look how God, good God's creation is that we can even taste all this, that he made this so that we can do this. Oh, this was awesome. Well, I won't be at a Brazilian steakhouse for quite some time. 
Um, and now that you know, I've gotten to share that with Becky, who knows, may, may never go again. But this guy did like more than that every day. Every day. He had, like in this land of plenty, he had everything. He wasn't, he wasn't eating at bargain times. He had the best of everything all the time at his disposal. He was concerned, this guy, this rich man who was unnamed, he was, he was concerned about living his life to the fullest potential here in this earthly realm. And because he was this man of means, they laid this man who needed help, this man named Lazarus, at his gate. This guy was evidently not able to move. They had to lay him at the gate. Perhaps he was actually crippled. Perhaps he was so hungry he couldn't move. Perhaps it was both. Perhaps he was crippled and he was hungry. And he was very hungry. All he was hoping for was maybe some scraps from this man's table. But he was in such poor shape that the dogs would come and he couldn't even get away from them. And they would come and lick his sores. Some think that this is the dogs perhaps belong to the guy in the mansion as well. So it's like there's this thing between them where this man needs help. The rich man who has plenty of resources doesn't even acknowledge and was, wouldn't even keep his dogs from licking the sores of Lazarus. And for Lazarus, it just it goes from bad to worse because now he's still hungry and now he's ceremonially unclean because he's been licked by the dog. So he's got he, he's in he's in a pickle. He what what does he do? And there seems to be no hope in sight. And it seems like this would be an opportunity for him to speak out against his uh, current condition uh, to God. Who why'd you let me you know? Why me? Why this now? Um, this is thought to be a parable by most commentators. Therefore, it's a story that is not specific to anybody. Uh, it's a story to tell a, a principle. That's what the point of a, a parable is. It's designed to have one main principle. And where we strain too much to, sometimes at parables, and we're trying to get too many uh, facts out of them, that they were never meant to deliver. Now, in this one, this is the first parable where a person is named. So we have this character named Lazarus. Now, the rich man goes unnamed, but the poor man, his name is Lazarus, which is interesting, I think. And I question myself whether or not this is really a parable. Because some think that it could be that Jesus, knowing all things, seeing all things, knows of this kind of a story about a very specific person called Lazarus. So some people think this could be um, kind of an account of what Jesus knows is going to happen. Well, the rich man was concerned about feasting on all the finest food and drink and wearing the most expensive clothing, so much so that he didn't have time to be concerned about those even outside his own gate to be of any help to them or, or uh, serve them in any way. He was kind of consumed with what the world had to offer. For us, we are rather affluent. Now, when we we like to think we're not, most of us. But compared to the really poor people in the rest of the world, we are affluent. 
And have you considered how your affluency keeps you or can keep you from depending on God? Do you find any time, do you have checks in you that say, my affluency, my ability to provide my needs is, it runs a risk of me not depending on God like I need to. I think that's true in us in many ways where we can become self-sufficient and then not even acknowledge that God, that what we have has come from God. Are you consumed with earthly pleasures or pursuits that impede your time so that you're not able to give of yourself to those who are in need? The next thing we see is consumed with self in the afterlife. So this, this man was consumed by the pleasures of the world. He was ultimately consumed with his, himself in the earthly realm, but then in the afterlife, he's still consumed with himself. Verse 22, it says, The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. That's very, very terse. It's, it doesn't give us much description. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So imagine that this is real and Jesus is, it's not just a parable. Imagine this man's shock when he dies and awakes and finds himself in this heat in Hades. This is, I, I don't believe this is what this man expected. I don't think he thought this was going to happen at all. This is a religious man. He would have been in shock to realize at the end of my life, this is what I get in return. He doesn't seem to be surprised that there is an afterlife, but he would have been a, a Jewish person because he's calling Abraham Father Abraham. So there's this, to, to address Abraham as Father Abraham, recognizing that lineage, recognizing you're in the family. So there's, there's a, a sense in which he's saying, I know who Father Abraham is. I know who God is. I am a child of God because I am a Jewish person. But instead, he wakes up in hell, and Lazarus is at Abraham's side. This unnamed rich man knows who Lazarus is. It says, it, it, it says right here that, uh, that he called out to uh, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger. So he knew who Lazarus was but evidently didn't really address any need he had when he was outside his gate on earth. And yet, he still expects Lazarus, and now Abraham, to do his bidding. I got this idea, I need help, and you, run and do it. You, Father Abraham, send him, please. They didn't even say please. As a Jew... If he knew God, if he knew the scriptures, 
He would know, as Jesus summarizes the law, as we know as Christians, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second one is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is, it. this is Old Testament stuff, not just New Testament stuff. He knew this. He would have known the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were the first four are about our relationship to God. The next six are about our relationship to fellow man. If he was a believing Jew, if he read his scriptures, if he attended the temple and heard the scriptures read, he would have known these things. And I don't think that exposure to that information was his problem. I think it was the fact that he didn't believe. This man was not, and this I think is very important to understand, this man was not in hell because he was not generous with his resources. He had surplus wealth and he was not generous. But that's not why he's in hell. He was in hell because he didn't love God. He may have claimed to know God. He may have claimed to be in the family. But he didn't know God. Or if he did, he would have been generous with his resources. Abraham responds to him in 25. He says, uh, it says, but Abraham said... Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is this great chasm, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now what's interesting is that Lazarus' name means God helps. And from the external signs, it really doesn't look like God helped Lazarus in the earthly realm. looked like he was in need. And again, there's, there's no mention of Lazarus complaining of his situation or speaking ill of, of, his, uh, of God because of his situation. So there must have been a belief in him that trusted that God was going to take care of him in the midst of his suffering. It seems that Lazarus was totally dependent upon God. And then ultimately, God cared for him by receiving him into the kingdom upon his death. So he's at the side of Abraham. That's what that means. What about us? What about you? Are you dependent upon God in the midst of your trials? Will you be found faithful through the challenges of life ahead of you? Will you continue to trust God and His provision for you, though you may not see a way? It may appear that all odds are against you. And in, in all of that, will you trust in God? These roles have reversed. The rich man could have seen Lazarus outside his gate. Perhaps while he was feasting at his table. 
But Lazarus was not able to get to him. And then now, the rich man sees Lazarus and Abraham, but he can't get to them, can't get to them. In the earthly life, the rich man was the picture of life. It, this, I think, it speaks to our contemporary day, where you know the 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 one who dies with the most toys wins. And what we always need is more. We need more stuff all the time. We need it bigger and we need it better and faster. And so we're always pressed to continue to drive for more. This was a picture of life that the rich man had. And now, and, and, the, and the picture that uh, uh, Lazarus represents was a picture of death, a picture of no life. Well, now the roles are reversed. Now there's a picture of life as Lazarus is by Abraham's side. And the rich man is suffering in the eternal flame. The next thing we see is how we're consumed with signs and wonders. Verse 27, it says, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, they may, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. And he said, No, Father. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It seems initially here that the rich man has turned the corner. He's thinking of somebody else besides himself. Maybe. It appears that he's thinking of his brothers. He knows this place is hot. He knows this place is torment. He doesn't want others to experience that. Would you please send Lazarus to my brothers? But there's, in part of this, there's this thing that says, if I had somebody that would have come, I would have repented. This is kind of what he's saying here. So he's, he's also still making excuses for himself. But we can appreciate the fact that at least he wants to spread the news. And it does seem, and I think, again, speaking to our contemporary culture, I think this would be very tempting for us to say, yes, that seems like a grand idea. Have Lazarus go. We know this certainly would be possible. Have Lazarus go and tell them. Surely they will hear. And oftentimes, when we're trying to share the gospel with a friend, what we really want to see present is a sign, a wonder, a miracle. Because if they saw that, they would believe. That's what we know. That's what we think. I talk to people. They say that thing. Abraham's response almost seems harsh. No, they don't need that. They've got Moses and the prophets. Rich, rich man is, is undercut here. Well, I, I, had, I had Moses and the prophets. I had what I needed. If we just had a sign, if we just had a symbol, if we just had a wonder that could stir in us this interest to believe, we think, 
after he gives Abraham, after Abraham gives the rich man this response, then he pleads with him again. Surely, if somebody came back from the dead, they would repent. So he's pleading. He's not believing yet Abraham, and he's not hearing Abraham to say God's word is sufficient. In fact, what the rich man is saying is, I heard what you're saying about Moses and the prophets, but God's word is not sufficient. What they really need is a sign, a wonder, a miracle. They need this Lazarus raised from the dead and going to make a personal visit to him. And this is where Abraham brings the correction that if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And of course, in the first century, first uh, hearers of this, where Jesus is talking, then also Jesus is on the cusp of going to the cross, and then he knows that he will rise from the dead. And he's, and he's pleading again with these hard-hearted Pharisees to believe God's word. He's, and, and this story is illustrating that. And then this hammer comes at the end that what the rich man is um, illustrating is, I think, a natural tendency, but I think it's the tendency of the Pharisees that we hear, we understand, we know God's word, but we don't believe it. We don't faith it. That, that, that thing where faith gets from just a mental cognitive thing to an action, something we live in. We don't... We don't have that. Uh, we don't have a verb for for faith. We we so we use believe uh, in our Bibles, and so we think believe. I I I intellectually understand that. I believe that. Yes, but do we faith it? Do we rest in it? Do we embody this truth? We want these people that. Jesus wants these people to believe. Jesus wants us to believe. He wants us to have faith. He wants us to act on what it is we know. He doesn't want us just to accumulate information. He wants us to love because we have been loved. This is quite the slam. If God's word wasn't enough for them, it won't be enough if someone comes from the dead. So, is God's word sufficient for you? Have you come to know a risen Savior and been fed by consuming His word? Instead of consuming the things of the world, have you been consuming His word? How has knowing Jesus transformed your compassion for others? Do you find yourself in a growing sense and awareness of the need of others? Does your heart break over things that you used to not even recognize? You might have looked over hurts in the past, but perhaps now as you're growing in Christ, your heart breaks over these things, and you can't get them out of your mind. Are you held back in fear of what might happen if you were to love your neighbor in this kind of way? Are you held back in fear of what might happen if you were able, if, if you were helping those who cannot help themselves? Well, it says here you ought to be in fear if you don't. God's word is sufficient. 
this Moses and the prophets. Later we'll see in uh, Luke 24 when Jesus joins uh, after the resurrection. Jesus joins the, um, those two disciples who are downcast and, and sad. And they're talking among themselves and he joins them and he says, So what are you doing? And he says, well, Do you not know? And with that, it, the scripture says that he begins with Moses and the prophets and teaches them all that the Bible had to say about him. So this is a, this is a collective thing. It's saying you got the Bible. When we say Moses and the prophets, you got the whole of the Bible and it tells you this and it tells you that how, of God's good grace and how you need to repent and believe. If God's word is not sufficient we will perish. So for us, may we allow the transforming grace of Christ to soften our hearts so that we can love those who cannot help themselves. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.